Well, amen. Thank you, choir. Church, let's take our Bibles and turn again to the New Testament, to the book of James. We're walking through the book of James together. Now, in chapter 1, James spent all of chapter 1 talking about how we respond to three things. About how we respond to trials, about how we respond to temptation, and then how we respond to truth. So when we turn to chapter 2, James is now going to flesh that out. You know, last week it was about what does it mean to not simply be a hearer of the word, but to be a doer of the word. And he's going to flesh it out in a way that is relevant to every Christian and to every church. He is writing to the church. He is writing to believers and he's going to talk with us about one of the key ways that you can see whether or not we are just hearing the word or if we're actually fleshing it out in the way we do life and in the way we do ministry. So this is a very, very important passage of scripture for us. Susan Ashton, who is a, a musician and an artist, tells a story about a young teenage girl who was violently raped. Several months goes by and she's dealing with the weight of all of this on her life and decided that she would go to church. She needed answers for her life and she just wasn't certain that she would find them outside of the church. And so she got up one Sunday morning and she got dressed and she came to church. She was nervous about coming. She was already starting to show that she was pregnant. But she knew this is a place where she could hear about the love of Christ. This is a place where she could hear about the gospel. This is a place where she could get answers about how to deal with pain in your life. So this little teenage girl comes to church. It's probably a church just like ours. She comes in and sits down. There's a group of people around her. As the service is going, she can begin to hear the whispers. She can already hear the assumptions that are being made about her. She's promiscuous. All right, here's another one of these teenage girls that's pregnant. Here's another one of these immoral girls coming to our church. The service gets over and people don't even speak to her. It's as if they were saying, heaven forbid, I don't want my son introducing himself 
to someone like that. I don't want my daughter running around with a girl like that. And Susan Ashton describes the scene of this hurting little girl who came to find God. But people looked on the outside, and when they looked on the outside, they made assumptions about her. And a teenage girl walks out of church, not helped, not loved, not accepted, and not told about the love of Christ. She walks in the doors, and she walks out of the doors. A place where God was supposed to be. And she walks in and she walks out rejected. How is it possible, church, that we who are the recipients of grace, how is it possible that we could ever be unloving to those who are around us. Today, James is going to drive home for us that the way we treat people reveals what we believe about the gospel. How we treat people is a test of whether or not we have truly experienced the saving power of Jesus Christ. When we look on the outside of people and assume that we know what is going on in their lives and then we treat them the way we perceive them, we make the gospel of no value. And that's what James is saying. Right? James begins in verse 1 by speaking of partiality, that, that the church, that the brothers and sisters, those who are the blood-bought, those who are the redeemed, are to show no partiality. And notice it says, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, who is the King of glory. So if we are the recipients of grace, if we are those who are of the faith in the one who is truly the king of glory, the one who can truly change every life, and if we hold to that faith and yet look at someone on the outside and assume based on what we see on the outside that we know what's going on in the inside and then we make assumptions, then we add value or take value away from that individual what we are in fact proving and what we are showing is that the gospel of Jesus Christ has had absolutely no effect on us. The word partiality is a combination of two Greek terms. It means to lift up the face, right? To receive favorably. The intent is catering to someone in hopes of getting something. And James drives home for us 
that faith and favoritism are completely incompatible. So he tells us that we are to hold no partiality and in order to explain it, right, he gives an illustration. And most scholars believe that this is not just some illustration that James just thought of to try to make a point, but in fact it may be something that he observed with his own eyes in a local gathering of believers in Jerusalem. Right, two individuals walk in to the church. Two visitors come into a church service. There is a rich man and there is a poor man. And why does James give them this illustration? Simply because the way we treat people reveals what we believe about the gospel. Genuine faith values people for who they are and not for what they have or how they appear. Dear ones, genuine faith in Jesus Christ never responds to people based on what we think they might be able to do for us. Genuine faith in Jesus Christ always responds to people based on what the gospel can do for them. And so James describes a rich man and a poor man. Right? So here's this local gathering of believers. Right? And don't, don't picture a, in your mind a sanctuary that looks like this, you know, where they walk into a large room and there's a bunch of pews and everything is in order. No, picture a room, right, in a group of people that are coming in and they're going to have a gathering and uh, there's no furniture. Right? They, they don't have a baby grand piano and a fancy organ and all of these instruments and any of this stuff. It's just a room. It's just four walls and a group of people. A lot of them are just seated on the floor. Some people are standing up, leaning against the walls as the truth of Jesus is being taught and expressed. And so in, into the room walks these two men. So here is a wealthy man, and boy, he's dressed in fine clothes, right? He's got jewelry on his hands, and in walks a very poor man who probably grabbed the best that he had when he showed up to church, and it wasn't very much. They take a rich man and seat him at a place in the room which would be a place of honor. And they take the poor man and direct him to the cheap seats. And James is saying, when you treat people that way, you have made a preconceived judgment about who has value and who doesn't have value. You're saying to the poor, you know what, we'll find a spot for you if we can. In fact, why don't you just sit here at my feet while I throw you my scraps. And James says, haven't you already become a judge with evil thoughts? Haven't you already evaluated the value of these two individuals based on the way they look? 
That's partiality. By the way, where do the evil thoughts come from? I'll tell you where the evil thoughts come from, right? When that wealthy individual walks in and believers immediately start looking at them and thinking, oh, wait a minute, boy, that guy, can, he can help us pay off our church debt. You know, he, he can help us build a building. Well, look what we could do if we had some members like that. That's where the evil thoughts come from. It's counterfeit Christianity. Now, honestly, church, we are simply not as impartial as we think we are. Right? You let a Gus Malzahn or a Nick Saban or some, the governor of Alabama come walking into the room and see the way we respond. The question is, is that the way God intends for it to be? And better yet, is there anything we can do about it? We believe that the gospel means that we are to treat every person the same. Regardless of their position, their power, their status, their wealth, their looks, their age, their education the kind of car they drive, the kind of home they live in, their background, their race, their heritage, church, these things should mean nothing to us. Can we present a clear gospel to the world if we put more stock in people than we do in God and His gospel. So James spends the rest of the text giving us two reasons why Christianity and partiality are incompatible. And the first reason is simply partiality is inconsistent with God's character. Right? That's why James says in verse 5, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him? How do you know that partiality and Christianity are incompatible? Simply because God cares for poor people. God shows no partiality. He chose the poor of this world to be rich in faith. So that begs the question, do poor people have some special relationship with God? And the answer is no. Notice the phrase, he has promised to those who love him. It is a simple fact that poor people are more receptive to the gospel than wealthy people. And keep in mind, James is speaking to the early church where over 80% of all the believers in the early church were living in poverty. God doesn't have any special favor on poor people except that they have this going for them. They recognize their need. I'll illustrate it this way. When is your prayer life the most vibrant? Right? When have you prayed with the most intensity, with the most 
passion, with the greatest sense of dependency. All right? If we took this mic and just passed it around from row to row to row and had people stand up and talk about that time in their life when their prayer life was more passionate and urgent than any other time in their life, I doubt anyone would really get up and say, well, uh, my prayer life was at its greatest when I got that promotion at job and, and my job and everything was just going great. That wouldn't happen for any of us. No, we'd pass the mic around and people would stand up and say things like, I remember when my mom was diagnosed with cancer. We would talk about our kids being in ICU. We would talk about when our marriages were struggling. We would talk about when we lost our job. We would talk about when we were concerned about how we were going to pay our bills. It is when you are desperate. It's when life doesn't make sense that your prayer life becomes very intimate. And James is saying God loves poor people and God loves rich people. Yet it is the poor people who are more receptive to the gospel because of their need. Anybody who's ever been on one of our mission trips to Honduras can stand and give evidence of this fact. You go to the doctor today, if you're like me, you got an appointment to see the doctor at 2 o'clock. So you show up at 1.45 to make sure your paperwork is all filled out and they've got a copy of your insurance card. And by 2.15, your feet are, uh, right, you're, you're just pacing the room, you're just nervous, you're looking at your watch, you're looking at your phone, wondering what in the world is going on with the doctor. It's 15 minutes past my time. And then they call you and, you know, it's time for you to go back. And so you stand up and there's 15 other people sitting in the room and all of a sudden, you know, you're special because now they've called your name, right? And you stand up and you prance through the room and go back to the waiting room only to wait for another hour. And when the doctor walks in, you are furious. Doesn't he know who you are? You go to Honduras, you go to a third world country, and you offer them care, and they will line up outside in the rain for hours with a smile on their face. James drives it home a little bit further. When he says you've dishonored the poor man and are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court and these aren't they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you have called. I mean look at the contrast here. God says you know God loves poor people but you have dishonored them. You've insulted them. Right? It's the rich people that when they know that you owe them, what are they doing? They're tracking you down in the street. They're putting you in a stranglehold. They'll throw you in prison till you pay your dues. 
So if 80% of the church are poor people, who are the ones giving them a hard time? It's the wealthy. It's the rich people. And what are the rich people doing? They are slandering the name of Christ. And James is giving this message to the church. James is saying the very ones that are giving you a hard time, the very ones that are grabbing you by the neck when you don't pay your bills, the very ones that are insulting the name of Christ and dishonoring the name of Christ, what do you do? They walk in the door for worship, you roll out the red carpet. And James says it's inconsistent with the character of God. And then secondly, he said partiality is inconsistent with God's Word. It's inconsistent with Scripture. He speaks of the royal law. And he says, if you show partiality, you're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, James knows what his hearers are thinking. He knows that they're probably thinking, now, James, come on. I mean, it's not like we're committing adultery. Right? It's not like we've committed murder. I mean, really, how big a sin can being partial really be? And he knows that's what they're thinking. And he tells them, right, in verses 10 and 11, he says, Whoever keeps the whole law but fails at one point has become guilty of all of it. James knows they're thinking partiality really can't be that great of a sin. And so James drives home the point. Any link in the chain that breaks makes the chain worthless. Any sin breaks your relationship with God. Partiality is very serious business. It is inconsistent with God's character. And it is inconsistent with God's word. So then James wraps up this section by giving two things. He gives an appeal... And he gives a warning. The appeal, right, is very simple. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. That's the appeal. He is saying from now on I want you to speak to people and act as though you are going to be judged by the law of love. The law of Christ that brings freedom to people. He's appealing to them. Speak and act. Live your life and talk to people as though you're going to be judged by the law of love. And then he gives a warning. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. For mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is giving others what they need. Not what they deserve. If you find yourself on a regular basis not giving mercy to other people the way God has granted mercy to you, and dear ones, hear this. If you find yourself on a regular basis not extending mercy 
to other people the way God has extended mercy to you when you may not be a part of His family. Anyone who claims the name of Christ and yet holds no mercy in their heart for people, that faith must be brought into question because it's not consistent with the gospel. I want to give you two images this morning. One is an image of partiality and one is an image of mercy. And one of these accounts makes no sense unless, of course, the gospel of Jesus Christ is true. Mahatma Gandhi was one of the greatest leaders of all India. He championed the concept of nonviolent protest. He spoke out against the caste system in India. He spoke out constantly against the classes. He is internationally esteemed for his doctrine of nonviolence to achieve political progress, to achieve social progress. In his autobiography, he tells of being incredibly moved by reading through the Gospels. And he considered becoming a convert to Christianity. Christianity, it seemed to Mahatma Gandhi, was the real solution to the class system that was dividing the people of India. So one Sunday, he went to a nearby church to attend services. He decided that when the service was over, he would speak with the minister and ask for instruction in the way of salvation and talk about other doctrines that were prominent in the church. When he showed up at the church, when he entered the sanctuary, he says that the ushers refused to give him a seat and that he go home and worship with his own people. So he left. He never came back. And this is what he writes in his autobiography. If Christians have social class differences also, then I might as well remain a Hindu. This week, former Dallas police officer Amber Geiger was sentenced on Wednesday to 10 years in prison for the fatal killing last year of Botham Jean, a man that she shot when she mistakenly entered his apartment 
believing it was her own. On Wednesday, at her sentencing, Botham Jean's teenage brother, Brant, took the witness stand and spoke directly to Amber Geiger. And this is what he said, and I want to quote him. And by the way, if you've seen the video, he didn't have notes with him. It wasn't scripted. He just spoke from his heart. And he said, I love you just like anyone else. And I'm not going to hope you rot and die. I know if you go to God and ask Him, He will forgive you. I personally want the best for you. I wasn't going to say this in front of my family. I don't even want you to go to jail. I want the best for you because I know that's what Botham would want for you. He looked at her dead in the eye. And he said, give your life to Christ. I think giving your life to Christ is the best thing Botham would want for you. And he asked for the judge's permission. And he stepped off the witness stand. And he met Amber Geiger, the young woman who killed his brother, and embraced her. You could hear Amber Geiger weeping as he hugged her. Her sobs were audible throughout the courtroom as the two hugged one another. Now, brothers and sisters, which one of these two scenes displays the gospel. The way we treat people reveals what we really believe. So as a church in this community, Every one of us as members of this fellowship must evaluate our own hearts. Our own lives. Our own ministries. From the pastors down to the deacons, down to the Bible study leaders, down to the ushers, down to the nursery care workers, down to every single minister and member. Do we respond to all people
the way that Jesus has responded to us. Do we value people the way Jesus values people? Not for what they have, but for who they are. See, when we talk about the gospel, we like to say the ground is level at the foot of the cross. And that is certainly true. But dear ones, it's not always level in the church. And so we must ask ourselves in closing, do we reflect the gospel by the way we treat everyone? Because if the gospel says that everyone who turns to Christ belongs to Him, then isn't it true, church, that they belong to us as well? What are you saying with your life? What are we saying with our ministries? I'm pretty sure that your Savior and mine spoke very clearly to us about this when he said, by this shall all the world know that you are my disciples by how you love. By how you love. By how we love one another. By how we love the world. May we never look at the outside and give value to an individual based on the way they look. May we never look at the outside, right, and prejudge an individual regarding their worth. May we see every life as a person for whom Christ died to save. And may we love them.